Folks, this week on the Pre-Rail Podcast, we're joined by Shannon Robnett. If you're interested in learning uh, about the real estate market, how to syndicate, how to build a, a, a company that is really by volume just absolutely exploded, Shannon has got a, a, a wealth of knowledge, down to earth, real genuine guy. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, he gave some some really amazing nuggets throughout the conversation, some things that from an investment perspective are things you want to keep an eye out for. Shannon Robnett this week on the Pre-Roll Podcast. Don't miss it, guys. This was a really good one. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Roll. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined today by Shannon Robnett. Uh, Shannon's the CEO of Robnett Industries, uh, has built a, a a really amazing portfolio, uh, over $250 million in construction projects, everything from flex space and multifamilies through municipal buildings and storage. Uh, Shannon uh, has a background in real estate. I think it's four four generations is in, in realtor and two generations is, as builder developer. Is that correct? Yeah, there's actually five. My sons followed me into the business. So there's really five generations of real estate. Uh, we, we go clear back to the Great Depression, even though we didn't cause it. <laughs> I love it. So uh, how old is your son? My son's 26 now. Yeah. So oh. um, um, that, that lands for me. My my son is still in high school. He's He's 15 years old. Um, and we, we've got a portfolio we've been building out in New Mexico. And he just took a, a trip with me last week and he's got the bug, man. Like yeah. he, he is all in. He wants to learn the land side of things and he's fascinated. Well, you know, James, I came out of high school wanting nothing to do with my real estate background. In fact, I did, uh, I, I went to college and I'm sitting there taking, you know, all of your core classes, accounting, econ, you know, speech, all those things that I didn't like. And my brother was building houses and at, you know, 19, 18 years old, he was making 45 grand a year in 1994. And, you know, I'm working at a coffee shop to make enough to cover my car insurance so I could live with my parents and go to college. And I quickly, quickly learned that I'd been taught a lot at the kitchen table growing up and I just didn't realize it. And so I very humbly put my proverbial hat in my hand and went back to my dad and said, Hey, you know what? I'd like to start building some houses. And, and, uh, he started me on that journey on in building my own company, and uh, it's been it's been an amazing one. And then my son, kind of similar story. He didn't really want to have a whole lot to do with the business growing up, and then you know he saw the kind of money that he had the opportunity to make at a call center or going to college or whatever, and very quickly changed his tune as well. It's um, it's a beautiful business if if you love it, yeah. If you've got the passion for it, it really. I wouldn't trade what I do for for anything. So you you're in you you go to college, you you come out, you make the shift. Now your portfolio is almost entirely centered in the Boise market, correct? Well, that's uh, that used to be the case, but you know Boise's become a very appreciation centric market, and so we've diversified out. We're in Florida, Texas, Washington, 
uh, and we're getting ready to do a deal in Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, we've uh, we've really focused on markets that are, you know, like Boise. I mean, Boise's made everybody's list for the last decade as far as you know best places to do whatever. But you know, James, as you know, you you would much rather have a mediocre deal in a great market than a great deal in a mediocre market. So, you know, we primarily look at market first. And then once we've identified our market and, and, and this is one we want to pursue, then only at that point do we even bother to consider deals in that area. It, you know, it's interesting you, you say that, Shannon. We, we have a, a, a book club in the brokerage side of, of the business and we're, we're currently reading a book. I won't mention the name of it with the team. And one of the principles that it talks about is not concerning yourself with things that you can't control, like the geopolitical climate. And for us, that has been the opposite of what has driven so many of our decisions uh, in which markets we're going to make a significant push in from an investment perspective and markets that we're not. The political climate to me is number one on the SWOT analysis when we're determining if we're going to jump in or not. How much does that play into your decisioning? You know, 100%. I mean, look, it, you wouldn't go buy a car, a car at a dealership where they, they were known to take advantage of people. Why would you go into a market that is known to take advantage of landlords uh, and be overly friendly to tenants? I mean, why put yourself at an unfair advantage when you're the one that's betting millions of dollars bringing in investor capital uh, to make that a reality? I mean, it just absolutely doesn't make sense. So the first thing we look at is that, you know, are we in a state that, that prefers landlords? Are we in a state that's development friendly, that wants to see growth? You know, there's clearly states out there like California and obviously New York that are not interested in development. And they've done that by putting up red tape. They've done that. I mean, James, I just got a project entitled, it's, a, it's currently a warehouse in an opportunity zone. Uh, I got it entitled for 200 units of multifamily, uh, two blocks from the mall, half mile from the main bus terminal in Boise. Uh, got that completely entitled in four months, right? Nothing says we want growth like that kind of an opportunity, right? And so when you can do that, I mean, especially at our age, why go beat your head against the wall just to prove you can do it? You know, you and I are not the Donald Trumps of the world. We're not looking for the fight. You know, I just want to make some money. I want to make some my investors some money. Uh, I want to provide housing to the communities, and I want to do it in a responsible way in a community that appreciates me. Yeah, it's uh, it's become my home market. Of course, is is New York, and it has become so challenging, and. This is the the simple equation for for us and a lot of other successful investors. When the risk is no longer commensurate to the reward, you move on. Absolutely, it's it's that simple. And uh, we have a, a similar experience in New Mexico now, where we're working through rezonings, we're working through uh, entitlements for a hotel, and we're talking about a few months and de minimis filing fees. Tremendous cooperation up and down the spectrum. Uh, wonderful people that are embracing uh, responsible growth that want to be a part of something special. Um, one of the deals that I, I recently exited in my hometown. Now imagine in New York, 16 acres. That's a big piece of property. That is. On 16 acres, 
I was four and a half years into a process, no wetlands, so no DEC, none of that stuff, four and a half years into a process with zoning in place to get 51 homes built. And four and a half years in, we still didn't have approvals for 51 homes. We were two and a half, $3 million long in filing fees and professional fees, and we still were battling. And I, I had that moment where I said, we've passed that point now. And until things start to throttle back, and, and I don't see it, unfortunately, uh, folks like us are just opting to go to other places. The Opportunity Zone you mentioned is an amazing program, and New York has decoupled from the program. They're yeah. not honoring the state benefit. Yeah. So, you know, on just our projects and, and our investments and our partners and our clients, I mean, it's got to be hundreds of millions that have left the state to go to other locations that are uh, embracing the Opportunity Zone program. And there's some wonderful projects that have come from it. Well, and, you know, when you talk about that, you know, everybody looks at stuff like that and they go, well, that's just, you know, a, a tax break for the rich. But, you know, I've literally had people pick this investment over other investments uh, because of the tax preference. And, and what they've done is they've sold something. They have a capital gain that they're going to pay. Right. They're able to delay that till 2026. But they've chosen this. And we're taking a 45,000 square foot warehouse that's home to four businesses currently. Uh, it, it's outdated. It was built in the 70s. Uh, and we're putting 200 uh, home or 200 apartments in there. 64 of them are low income. And, you know, James, we've taken that and we've looked at it not only from the investment standpoint, from the tax benefit standpoint. So, you know, imagine you've got a, a capital gain event that you, you exit, you come into the opportunity zone with that warehouse on there. We're able to take and do a bonus depreciation. We had a was a five and a half million dollar purchase for the warehouse. We were able to take about a million six of the two and a half million dollars in equity we brought. We were able to give them bonus depreciation for that. Next year, uh, sorry, the end of this year, we'll tear down the building, right? So you'll finish off the bonus depre or the depreciation because you no longer have an asset. So you claim another two million, two point two million dollars in tax benefit before you even get to 2026. So you don't have a tax event, right? Then we're bringing in LIHTC funding, low-income tax credit housing funding from the federal government for about $9.5 million in our, in our capital stack. So that's a benefit to us. The community loves us because we're providing affordable housing. 10 years from now, when we exit that after improving it to the tune of $82 million in our community, everybody walks away with zero tax implications at that point. So you know, we've taken a great deal We've made it substantially better by utilizing the things that, that friendly states offer that make good deals phenomenal. Yeah, the, the ability to have control over your capital and put it to work in the opportunity zones, is, as you noted, you're creating jobs on the demo side, on the construction side, on the, the permanent side, once you stabilize and have to maintain uh, you're, it, the, it's a great program that really does put people back to work and, and provides a boon for the local economies. Yeah. You know, you've built, you've built some big operations here, um, in volume. Uh, I'm curious in personnel, what does the company look like personnel wise? 
you know, we are actually, uh, I'm downsizing my construction company. We're doing a lot more outside of Boise. And I'm not the kind of guy that wants to be managing my own personnel in Tennessee uh, or, you know, Florida. So we're downsizing that. But there's currently, uh, I think there's, we're down to about nine of us uh, in our in our complete operation. So we've got, uh, you know, three full-time employees in the construction side of things. Um, and then um, we've got six of us in in the capital raise and, and the, you know, um, investor relations portion and, and underwriting, um, you know, on that side. So we're really kind of shifting that focus because for the same amount of energy, I mean, the reality is I've got to oversee all of this. So if I'm trying to manage a construction portion, even though I've got, you know, great personnel and I've got project managers and I've got great superintendents, I can't manage them to the degree that I need to um, and have the level of success that I expect. And so, you know, I've got projects, uh, you know, all the way across the nation now. And doing that, to me, the best way is to step into a local market. I prefer the interview process because I've been doing this long enough. I've been in, you know, my own companies for 30 years in construction. Um, I prefer the interview process. And when I find an owner that is geared like me, wired like me, understands the project success is really firmly in their hands. They understand that speed is, is it. They understand that, you know, great connections with lo local subcontractors is core to their success. Um, then I find that's my guy, right? And then we look at making sure that, uh, that we line up on where we're at. I always involve subcontractors and, and general contractors in the development of the plans um, because, you know, I obviously don't know everything. And when I can employ them and I can, I can get them to help me build out what's best for the whole operation, it really, really works well, uh, really tones down the change orders, really tones down uh, the delays. It speeds up the communication because by the time we're breaking ground, everybody's familiar with the plans. So you mentioned um, six people on the, the capital raise size side of the deal. So we, we hear quite a bit from folks We've got a great deal, uh, but but we don't know where to begin. We don't know how to how to raise capital, and oftentimes they'll end up brokering it out uh, because they don't recognize if you have the deal, the capital will come. Yeah. What advice would you give to folks that are in that position that have access to deals, but they haven't thought about or figured out the capital raise piece? Well, I mean, look, uh, James, you've been in this game a long time, and if you've done it like I've done it, I'm, I got a pretty sneaking suspicion that you have, uh, you went and found those that knew what you didn't, and you found out how to make them teammates, right? I mean, there's no sense, somebody's got a great deal, there's no sense giving it away, right? There's no sense walking it away. Yeah. Uh, but I know for a fact, if I, if I found a deal uh, and I couldn't raise the capital, I came to you and I said, hey, James, listen, I have this great deal. I need the knowledge. I need the information. If I bring you this deal, can I have a small piece of it? And will you show me how to do this deal? I know the answer would be absolutely yes, right? If it checked the boxes, if it worked through with what you're doing, um, I would, and I do that all the time with people, right? They bring me a deal. You know what? This is a great deal. Uh, and you just go open kimono. You just show them what you know. And they either decide that they want to be all things to all people, which is rare, right? I happen to be one of those uh, unicorns that I, I can raise capital. I can, I can bet and, you know, build deals. I can manage deals. 
Um, you know, I, I, our team does all of it, but a lot of people don't. They focus on what they're good at, which is really smart. You know, you'd never call your plumber and have him pave your parking lot, you know? Yep. Uh, and so why would you think that you've got to raise all the capital and, and find the deals? If you're great at finding deals, find strategic partners like yourself or myself that you can take these deals to, gain a piece of the upside, learn from there and, you know, move on and advance your strategies, become better at what you do without having to be, uh, you know, a fish out of water. Because the last thing you want to do is figure out how to pull the capital together. Okay, so now you did step one, you found the deal. Step two, you pulled the capital together. Step three, you got to go execute on that model. Well, those are three very different hats to wear. I mean, that, that only took me 30 years to figure out what I'm doing. And, you know, why would you want to think that you could do all of that or had to do all of that? You know, it's funny. I, I, I find about every five years or so, I think I figured it out. Every five years or so, I go, oh, okay, now I understand the way this thing's supposed to be done. Right. <laughs> right? Um, look, we're, we're hearing now, Shannon, a lot of the talking heads that the real estate market is is in trouble and the sky is falling and there's no debt available and foreclosures are going through the roof. Uh, what are you seeing on the ground and and how are you seeing next steps in the market? Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, every bit of news we're getting nowadays, it's, it's completely biased, one-sided, and usually full of garbage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm closing on an industrial deal. I just closed on one two months ago in, in the Houston market with uh, 4% debt. Uh, I'm getting ready to close on another one with five and an eighth debt fixed for 10 years with a 10-year option. Um, you know, debt is still out there. Debt is still plentiful. Capital is still out there. What's changed is the DSCR that nobody was paying attention to, the debt service coverage ratio, that tells you that you can't go get 90% loan to value on a value add uh, because you've got debt service now. I mean, 3% debt service, come on, James. We've never seen that in our life. We probably won't see it again. And so to think that we're going to be able to make that model work now, be able to make those numbers work, um, it just doesn't, it doesn't pencil like that. Most banks want to see 125% coverage on their debt. So if you've got a $10,000 mortgage, they want to see you have, you know, 12.5 in, in NOI. Um, and a lot of people look at it and go, well, the purchase price is, you know, $40 million. I should be able to bring in, you know, 8 million and make this deal work. Well, that's not what's happening anymore. And so a lot of people built their model based on, you know, we're going to do this $40 million deal. We're going to put bridge debt in place uh, at the end of our, our time period there. We're going to flip that bridge to perm. We're going to cash out refi. We're going to create value. But cap rates have changed, right? Cap rates have crept back up. Cap rates. Uh, this is the first time in my life, James, after doing this for 30 years, that I've ever seen cap rates be inverted to debt, right? I mean, you've got cap rates that are still in the you know, fives, and you've got debt that's at, at the high fives, you know, low sixes. Yep. And so that's an inversion I've never seen. Yep. And so you've got that that's happened. So your your property is, you know, even though you, you're, you've you executed perfectly on your game plan, you came in, you rehabbed, uh, you raised the rents, you improved the product, you, you've solved the vacancy problem, you've done all that, you still have a, an asset that may in some cases be worth less on paper, 
you may have a stronger NOI, but then when you go and apply that NOI to the debt service coverage ratio, you're not able to get the capital out. And so people are either not getting their return to their investors or worst case scenario, they're having to do a cash in refinance, which leaves them in the predicament. Do I sell now for a loss or do I go back to my investors and, and raise more capital to come into the same deal they're already in, uh, lowering the expectation, lowering the returns because they didn't play real estate as the long game. Yep. You know, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people are playing, uh, you know, real estate is a one shot deal. It's a 12 to 24 month deal. And it's not, man, it's 18 holes of golf. It is, you know, bunkers and trees and all kinds of COVID and, and, you know, shortages on materials. And I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff that have happened and that's not unusual. So we've just got to play it that way. And when you play it that way, uh, probably like you have, definitely like I have, you know, you're not surprised and your investors are looking at something that's, you know, underwritten properly. It's scored properly. And when you're doing that, what's going on in the news absolutely has no bearing and no effect. What's going on in the, in the, in the capital markets has no bearing and no effect on any of my projects. It, the, the long game, it, that, that's it. That's where it starts and stops. We, we saw for years, especially in the multifamily market, pro forma after pro forma come in where they were chasing the, you know, their loss to lease and they were going to increase rents by 30%. They were going to cut management by 20% in a market they had no experience in when inflation was at probably 11 or 12% in spite of what was reported. Exactly. And, and in spite of their still being favorable long-term fixed debt, they were opting just to make the proformas work for that shorter-term debt and banking on these refis. And it, it was like, guys, if you, I, I call it getting to the other side of the rainbow. If you can't get to the other side of the rainbow in real estate, you are dead. Right. These, you know, the, the excuses, and that's what they are that we hear today about COVID and supply chain issues. And these are the names have changed, but the circumstances have not, right? This exactly. is than it was 10 years ago and 10 years before that. There yeah. are anomalies in the market that are always going to be there. And if you're responsible with the debt and you're giving yourself time to stabilize the deal and get to the other side. That's the magic sauce for us, at least, has been yeah. staying power and making sure that we're not over leveraged and we're smart with our debt. Well, you know, I mean, look, you can pencil whip a spreadsheet to tell it whatever you want, right? I mean, uh, especially if you add a nice, uh, nice cocktail or, you, you know, uh, a beer to it uh, while you're doing your calculations, you could make it say you're going to you're going to make a million dollars a month on this. But, you know, anytime like you, anytime I see a performance performa that has less than a five year duration on it. I'm immediately suspect, right? Yeah. Because you're timing the market. It, it's no different to me than the guy that's now crying about the price of Tesla uh, because he got in, you know, one week before the peak. It's no different than the investor that got into the last real estate cycle in 08 uh, in December of 07. You know, the, there's there's a lot of that that's happening, and it and it will continue to happen. It's human nature, right? Everybody wants to do it, but. This goes back to seasoned investors. They may not know the best deals, but they know how to vet the sponsors. They really know how to understand, look, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm you know high W2 wage earner in Silicon Valley. What I need to know is does James 
know what he's talking about? And does James have the track record? Did James go through the 08 recession? Did James go through the dot-com bubble burst? I mean, how many, how, what, this one will be what? My fourth recession, third or fourth recession, right? Yep. So it's not like I like recessions, but I've made a lot of money in them because I've learned from the last one. And I've just like you said, the name has changed, right? Uh, we're going to change it to something else. I mean, you know, we had, we had the dot-com bubble burst. We had Y2K. Remember that one, right? Oh, Somebody sure. reminded me we went through Y2K, right? Uh, when all the computers were supposed to die. And, you know, all this different stuff, but it's about that longevity. It's about understanding your horizon and knowing where you're going and knowing that your underwriting is there that we can make it. You know, if you're underwriting that you've got to get anything more than a 3% uh, rent increase, over a five-year window, you know, 3% a year, so maybe 15%. Uh, if you're looking at that, you're you're teasing yourself. You're being delusional. And a lot of people forget that they're dealing with other people's hard-earned money. You know, somebody else went out and, and, and made that money, paid those greedy bastards in Washington to give it to you. Yep. And uh, you owe them uh, the responsibility and the fiduciary duty to know what you're doing when you take it. There's a real, unfortunately, there's a real lack of that. Some of it is nefarious. Some of it, I think, is just they don't have the experience. They don't know any better. They don't understand what's around the corner. Uh, but nevertheless, there is no higher uh, obligation than to that of your investors. You know, if you're not if you're not getting in, into deals with folks that are treating your money as an investor better than they're treating their own money, you're, you're probably not in the right spot. Um, Shannon, what type of, of deal are you looking for today? Is, are, are you slanting toward residential, commercial, mixed use? You know, uh, we look at, I, we do a lot of multifamily. We do a lot of industrial. Uh, we've done a couple of office deals. Um, office is obviously uh, kind of treacherous right now. Nobody knows if they're coming back to the office or not. Um, but, you know, my background is industrial. I did my first industrial investment for myself in 2001. I've got two of the original tenants still in the building, you know, 22 years later. Um, and they've grown their business, but they don't want to change their address, you know. Um, and so we look at that. We look at, obviously, like we talk, we look at politics, we look at market, we want to drill down into the right markets, do the right deals. But we're definitely not in a hurry. We are not somebody that's sitting there going, we got a pipeline, we got to fill, we got to you know, we got, we got to make deal flow happen because we got to make some fees and we got to do this. We got to do that uh, because we like to make sure that what we're doing has the right tone to it. It's got the right longevity. Um, you know, we've got the right mix of investors in it. We've got the right tax credits. We've, we've kind of placed all this together so that we're making sense of it for ourselves and our investors, because doing a deal for deal sake is, I mean, that's like, that's like running across a freeway just to see if you can make it. Yeah. Are, are you looking to cluster deals? If you, if you're, you had mentioned uh, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, once you start to enter those markets, do you typically look to build around those deals? Yeah, always. You know, when we entered the Houston market, I recognized very early that the Houston market is a strong industrial market, but it's not great uh, for multifamily. And, you know, my deduction on that was based on, you know, how wage growth has, has been kind of slow compared to the rest of Texas. Um, and it's mainly a blue collar town. Uh, you've got a lot of things going on with the port, you know, everything that, that, that is Houston there. 
uh, but that means it's going to be strong for industrial, right? And so when we go into that market, yeah, we're looking for two and three and four deals just because, you know, you fly down there to check on your asset, to meet with your management team, to do those kinds of things. You don't want to just check on one deal, you know, check on two or three uh, moving into the Florida market, same way, Tennessee, same way. So we look to do that, but you've got to go get your foothold and you've got to get something that's substantial, that's sustainable, uh, and that's going to do really well. Um, you know, kind of, I look at it that if you can get one deal that's kind of a flagship, you know, so that you're moving into the market, and you're moving in strong, uh, because if you're going to cluster deals and you've got, you know, your first deal is mediocre, that's not going to breed a lot of strength for people watching you do that into that market. For sure. Uh, so in, in, in that approach, what does it look like from an investor's uh, perspective? Are you securing deals and then sourcing capital? Are you locking the deals up? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so we do a combination of both. Uh, you know, if we're doing a development deal, uh, all of my development deals, I will never purchase a piece of property before I have full entitlements. Uh, and that means that I pass on some pieces that I'd like to have. But the reality is, you know, just like you described earlier in the show, James, you've got four years into this deal. Um, if you had to buy the land first to put those four years in, you've got interest carry on your land. You've got opportunity costs with what you've done. You've got expenses for all of your, you know, consultants and everything like that. I'm okay to spend the money on the consultants, but I want to make sure that, you know, if, and usually when I go into a market on a, on a land deal, I don't argue too much on price. If it works, it works, but I also make it conditional that, hey, you know, I'll buy your piece of land for $5 million if I get it approved for 300 units, right? Yep. And so you get your price, but in, in order to do that, you've got to give me the terms, right? You know this game, James, it's price or terms, right? I'll give you the price, you give me the terms, we'll get it entitled. As soon as we get it entitled, that's when we start bringing in the investor capital. So then we come in, we have a couple of standard plans that we really like as far as how things are built. We modify per the area, usually a couple months after we've secured the ground and gotten through our entitlements. We usually give ourselves 60 days to close on the land after entitlements. Close on the land, we're ready to submit for building permits. We're off and running and uh, making a mess in the ground, you know, usually within four months of entitlements. Uh, and then in that four month period of time, we're bringing in the capital. We've got some great relationships with some lenders uh, that are, you know, they're, they're very versatile, they're very mobile, they're very agile, so we can move into a market very quickly um, and secure the debt and go vertical. Uh, if we're buying something that's existing, you know, there's a little bit less leeway, you've got a little bit tighter timeline, but all of the things that you need to prove are there, right? So you do your due diligence, you secure your debt at the time you've got that tied up. Uh, you know, and we go into every single one of our deals for 5% of the equity stack, 5% uh, of the, the debt or the, sorry, yeah, the equity. And so I'm, I'm always the one that writes the earnest my check, right? I'm, I, I'm always the one that pays for the due diligence. And that comes back to me uh, in what I put into the deal. And so, you know, that takes, that takes some money, uh, but it also keeps my investors from facing any of that risk. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the other side of that, James, if I've got to bring investors in on that front side, I've got to give up some of that front side. When we put our land in our deals, we never mark it up. Right. I mean, we get paid for our entitlements. We get paid for that work. But if we were able to secure the contract on the land at five million dollars for 300 units, that's what it goes into the deal at. Right. Wow. And so they have the trust and the faith that everything we do is transparent. 
because I, I've never done a deal, James, that went perfect. I'm waiting for my first one, right? <laughs> that everything goes like clockwork. There's always something, right? And we've watched people for the last three years underwrite to perfection, which is a disaster. It, it's not real, right? right. It, that, right. That's the, one of the great questions if you're trying to vet out um, an operator is ask them about what's gone wrong on deals. And if they don't have a list, like forget about it, then right. they're not being <laughs> truthful with you because it never goes according to exactly how you script it. Um, you, you touched on a lot of, of things there I want to highlight. Number one, if we would not have structured that initial deal I had referenced where it was subject to entitlements, we would have been dead. You're 100% right. Even in a home market, knowing uh, intimately what the market looked like, having that additional carry for those four and a half years would have killed us. Um, because I'm a, a broker initially that's transitioned onto the equity side and, and you have a similar experience, it's it's a there's no better job to have in in my mind the experience we've picked up on the brokerage side for 10 years 15 years before we really jumped in on the investment side we had the benefit of of being a part of every deal you can imagine from the defaulted debt crisis uh commercial and retail office land leasing um, new builds, I mean, you name it, we were a part of it. And that knowledge, that expertise is what is giving you that advantage when you're going and securing a deal and you're you're paying for the entitlements and you're making deals that are subject to. And I applaud you for putting your your land deals in uh, at par because that is is becoming rare. I'm seeing more and more and more that the there's a huge delta between that initial number and what they're actually putting it in the pro forma for. Um, so that's, that's pretty neat to hear. But, you know, James, the thing that we do is uh, we also do a, a true waterfall, right? So, I mean, we're on par with our investors at 5% equity, uh, if until they get their, you know, preferred return and up to a 12% return. And then from there, we step up. If we're getting you a 23% return, we're getting a very large slice of that over the top, right? So I can afford to put it in the deal bet on myself, just like you're doing with your money, right? Because if I can perform like I think I can, and I, I don't like, I don't like exercise, right? So I'm not doing this for the fun of it. But when I can perform like I think I can, I can make the money I should have made on the land, right? right? But I'm betting on the end product, I'm not putting myself in there. I've got enough other businesses, I've got enough other things going that this is not where I'm making my money on the entitlement process right? I'm making my money on my exits. I'm making my money on my cash flow. And when you align yourself with people like yourself, people like myself that have done this often enough, and they know where they're supposed to be paid, not where they need to be paid, right? I need to get paid because I got to survive to the next deal. I need to do this to get this done. I I need to be paid, James, when my people win, when that project is successful, and we're exiting that deal, that's when I need to be paid. That's when it's most tax efficient for me. And that's when my investors deserve to reward me for my hard work. Not before. I love it. Um, if if you had to give some advice or or resource, perhaps, is there any books, podcasts, things that you would reference for investors that are looking to uh, step up their game and, and take things to the next level, perhaps start raising capital and getting involved in syndications. Any resources that have been super helpful for you? 
You know, honestly, James, the best resource you can find, I think, is networking with other syndicators. Figure out how you can be important to important people. Identify people that you want to mentor you and don't do what everybody else does and say, hey, do you have a mentoring program where I can throw money at you and you can tell me what you think you want that I want to know? But when you can come in, I just recently brought a guy on that uh, is going to be full time here in the next little bit that he came to me and said, what do you have that I can do? And I threw him one of my deals. I said, analyze this and scrutinize this. And he sent me back three pages of notes, all typed up real nice. He went through everything from the punctuation to, you know, this seems a little bit different than your last deals comparing to this, comparing to that. And was just a complete uh, data nut on this thing. And I saw he had a skill set. And I'm like, you know, would you like a job here? Because this is something that we're lacking. And, you know, he will become full-time very soon. And it's what he wants, right? It's what he he always envisioned. And so I, I always tell people, you know, you can learn more working in the field. If you want to be a developer, go find a job at a development company. Go answer the phone, start there. You know, work with other people that are doing what you're wanting to do. Uh, because you can read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. I gain nuggets that I can add to what I'm already doing. But the reality is, man, and James, you know this, you get in the trenches, you see two days before closing, the, the buyer calls up and goes, time for that haircut, James. And you know what's happening. And until you've done that, and until you've worked through that, until you've watched somebody negotiate, and navigate, uh, and walked away from that battle, you're not really going to understand it. So I would tell people, go where they are, hang out, find out what you can do to be useful, under promise and over deliver on everything that you do with them. And you will become somebody that they learn to rely on. I mean, I've got people in Tennessee now that I call because they made themselves available. And when I want to know about the market, I can have data in 24 hours from, I can have pictures from the street, right? And, and now they're become a, a reliable part of my team. And at that point, I open up everything I have to them. My resources are your resources. My information is your information. And they're getting an inside look, 30 years of business that they can tap into because they have become somebody that I can also rely on. So don't underestimate the power of just networking with, with people that are doing what you're doing, taking a job with people that are doing what you're doing and learning it from the ground up and know that just like the investment itself, the exit is a long way down the road. So spending three years in a development office or five years in a development office, answering phones, working your way up, becoming somebody that's important uh, in that organization to learn from the ground up is I think one of the best educations you could ever get and usually you can get paid to do it. Wonderful advice. And, and the community overall is absolutely willing to offer that. There's uh, today more than ever, we can, we can reach just about anyone through a few clicks. And uh, this community I've found to be a wonderful community as I was coming up through the ranks, uh, people that you you kind of mystify and you put up on a pedestal were incredibly approachable, really wanted to help. And, and now it's it's our turn to, to pay that back and, and to pay yep. that forward. Um, Shannon, where can people learn most about your operation? Where should we point folks? You know, the easiest way is just to go to shannonrobnet.com. Uh, you can get links to my podcast. You'll be able to get a link to this episode if uh, if you want to watch it again on a different platform. My book list, uh, my calendar is available. If you've got uh, if you've got questions, you want to you want to chat, we could definitely uh, schedule a call. Uh, but 
just shannonrobnet.com. You can get a hold of me right there. All my socials are there as well. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I know you're traveling. This was super valuable. And uh, best of luck, man. We'll be in touch. James, I really appreciate what you're doing for the community with bringing information and, and bringing this kind of knowledge that you have, making it accessible to people. Because as you and I know, that's what builds the community. And that's the only thing that's going to keep us safe as an investment community, because there's still there's still a lot of village idiots out there, man. Amen, brother. <laughs> Shannon Robnett, appreciate you, baby. Enjoy the Thank trip. You. All as right. always, everyone, please stay safe. 